I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. We welcome on Ian Fillmore, an economist with a PhD in economics from the University of Chicago and assistant professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Ian, welcome on. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Ian, I, I got to say that you're a little bit different than our typical golf uh, crazed guest, but you've done considerable research in sports and specifically tennis. You and uh, Jonathan Hall wrote a paper that I've become just entranced with uh, called Technological Change and Obsolete Skills, Evidence from Men's Professional Tennis. So I wanted to have you on just to kind of talk about your paper. And I think there's some really interesting parallels with it to golf and the current kind of state of the game that everybody talks about with kind of where technology is going with our game and how it's affected our game. So so first off, tell us about, you know, how you stumbled onto this topic and and wrote this paper with Jonathan. Yeah, so I actually grew up playing tennis. I uh as a kid, I I got playing competitively and um I was uh played in the Missouri Valley uh, area and and uh, played a little bit in college and then my my whole family was a tennis family and my brother played as well and played in college and so I kind of steeped in the tennis world and and knew about that and I uh, ended up going to graduate school in economics and kind of wanted to write you know write about what I knew and I knew a little bit about tennis of course and uh, so I said well uh, you know. There, I I knew about from talking to my dad and playing tennis growing up. He would often talk about playing with a wood racket, and he had some of his old wood rackets, and about how hard it was. and And he would always say, like, "Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't even hit the ball. You know, it was just it took so much practice to just even make contact with the ball." He he said the the new rackets are so much better, and so I sort of knew that. Right, the new rackets are better. But then, as I I got looking into it more, I realized it's not just that they made it easier to play, which they definitely made it easier to play, but they actually changed the way that people played the game. And if you go back and you can find a video of uh, guys like Ken Rosewall or Rod Laver, and you can watch them play on kind of this grainy black and white video uh, from the late '60s, and the pace of the game is so much slower. Uh, the players are moving slower. The amount of effort that they're exerting to hit the ball, it just, it's just a lot more low-key sport. And, um, you know, I get, and if you even look at the players, the players look different. They were very slender. They weren't very muscular. Um, they're often playing in long pants, you know, which is, like, difficult to imagine uh, uh, guys today uh, doing any of this. And so I said, okay, well, I mean, something dramatic really happened here. And I remembered when, when I was a kid, 
uh, in the early 90s, which was right, we were finding right when this, um, this transformation was really occurring. Uh, I remember everyone being really worried about how the game had, had gone from this beautiful game of tennis to this very uh, uh, crude and boring game where uh, there was just sort of a serve and, and lots of aces and very short points. And people were kind of pining for the old days when there were these long and interesting points. Um, and so then fast forward, I'm getting out of graduate school in uh, around 2015, and I, and I sort of occurs to me that, hey, we're sort of back, right? Like you can go on YouTube and you can watch these points between guys like Nadal and Federer that are just like they blow your mind, right? Like the game, the point keeps going and they're all over the court and they – and they're really entertaining to watch. And I said, well, you know, what's going on here? I got to looking into it. And, and it turns out that there was this transitory period when I was growing up where the game was shifting from the old wood rackets to the new composite rackets. But it took a while for that transition to work itself out. And if you actually um, – I, I got I, – out of curiosity, I just looked it up and I said, okay, well, when were the – when were the records set for the youngest uh, champions of each of the four Grand Slams? And it turns out they were all set at right around the same time. So um, Boris Becker and Stefan Edberg uh, for Wimbledon and the Australian Open were in 1985. In 1989, Michael Chang was the youngest Grand Slam winner ever uh, at, at the French. And then for the U.S. Open, it was Pete Sampras in 1990. So it was all within like five years that these all-time records for youngest Grand Slam champions were set. And I said, well, that can't be a coincidence, right? And, and so we started digging into it more, and it turns out it's not a coincidence. So, so I guess this is, uh, this is, the, this is the paper. So you've, you've uncovered that there's not this coincidence. So you start to dig in, and you look at the racket change. And, and so to give a reader that hasn't, read your, you know, I think it's about 40 page paper. Right. What, what were your kind of, when you dove into this, what were the three or four things that you really wanted to examine? So, yes, the first thing was this idea that, so the idea that we had was a, a new technology arrives and let's say the new technology is better than the old one. So it, in our case, it was a new tennis racket arrives, but it could be other things. It could be uh, you're a farmer and suddenly tractors arrive, whatever it could, whatever it might be. So this new, this new tennis racket makes all the tennis players better. Uh, so that's sort of the first effect, but that doesn't really do much. If everyone just sort of gets better, it, then, you know, in, in a, on a, on the tour, that's not necessarily going to benefit one player versus another. It's just everyone kind of gets better all at once. But then what happens is, at least our idea it was, but the, the young players who haven't spent their whole life learning how to play with the old racket, they're going to have an advantage because they can tailor their game to the new rackets in a way that the, the older players can't. Like they've already learned their technique. You know, they, they hit the ball how they hit it. And they can't radically change their game overnight. It's almost like that saying you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Yeah, I think that's I mean, at some level, that's right, especially when we're talking about people who are just at the pinnacle of human achievement. Right. Like just the smallest little thing 
makes a big difference for them. And, and so they've really honed their skills to, and optimized their game based on the, the equipment that they're playing with. Then you make a big change in the equipment, and all of a sudden the young players who haven't made all those investments in learning the old style equipment, they can start doing things that the old guys can't even imagine doing, right? So in tennis, uh, all of a sudden people start hitting open stance, and they, they switch their grips from that continental or eastern style grip to that semi-western and then even the extreme western grip, which uh, would have been crazy to do with the wooden rackets. It just wouldn't work. And so if you actually dig into the physics of tennis, uh, I don't know how much your listeners want to know about the physics of tennis. There's a whole, uh, some great books written on this. But basically what happens is the, the string bed gets a little larger. It gives them a little more surface area to hit that ball with. And that little extra surface area allows him to get much more topspin and, and kind of swing up. And that extra topspin opens up the ability to hit with uh, a lot more power than they were able to before. And, um, and so that starts to change the game in terms of the physicality of the game, the, the players involved, uh, physical training, which uh, wasn't so much a thing in the late 60s and early 70s, starting to become, starts to become very important, and athleticism becomes much more important. Speed becomes very important, strength. Um, and so, and, uh, so people first noticed it, I think, with that the serves started to get faster. Mm-hmm. Kind of like driving, I guess. Like, oh, yeah, yeah the people are driving farther, right? And, and, but the, then, and, the, and the racket um, got – so the racket in tennis got bigger and more forgiving, which it, and it allowed, yes. which allowed for more power. Just like kind of it, – to me, it, it's very similar to the driver, which got – became metal, got bigger, and more forgiving. Yeah, but both – yes, both – both more powerful and more forgiving. And because it's more forgiving, of course, you can take a bigger swing. Yes, exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. And so then that sort of increases the power that much more. Yeah, and then a very similar thing happened with the tennis rackets. So, uh, but then once, once that happens, then people start to respond to that. And the whole game starts to, starts to adjust into uh, what you see today, which is almost a very different game. Like, I, I'm... I would be willing to bet that if you took Roger Federer back to the 60s, handed him a wooden racket, and had him play Rod Laver, that he he wouldn't do very well. <laughs> On the other hand, if you took Rod Laver in his prime, you know, handed him a new racket and put him up against uh, Roger Federer, it would be over in a minute. So, like, they're they're almost like different sports in a way as they've evolved over time. Yeah, it, it, it's something you referenced also in in the paper is like basketball with a three-point line where the original intention of the three-point line was to give the big players more space. And in turn, you know, it led originally to more big players, but now it's led to the advent of the three-point shooter, right? Right, right. And yeah, so there, that was a paper that um, some, other, uh, some other economists published a few years ago, looking at the effect of the three-point line and finding that the primary effect of it was actually to increase the value of the of like your, your center, right? Because the three-point line moved the shooting guards out, opening up room for the center. So you, you can have these interesting effects um, that emerge um, as uh, that are a little bit difficult to predict. Mm-hmm. So, so 
you start to see a change. So everybody gets better right off the bat. But then you start to see a change where younger players are getting better. Right. And so so one of the things we do is we looked at so there are four Grand Slam tournaments every year and we looked at what was the because we didn't want we just didn't want this to be a story about like one player, right? Or two players. Because most of the most of the sports press they like to focus on kind of that one or two players and those interesting anecdotes, which are which make for a great reading. But we wanted this to be about, you know, bigger picture, what's happening to the whole whole tour. So we said, okay, well let's just look simplest way to look at it is um if you want to think about a measure of success for players, um, advancing uh, in Grand Slam tournaments is not a bad measure. So we said, okay, well, let's look at the average age of players who make it to the round of 16 in each of the Grand Slams. And we just sort of plotted that over time. And the figure is really striking. And what you see is the average age was around like 27 years old in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and then it just plummets to around 24 years old, with some of the, some of the majors uh, being as low as around 22 years old uh, uh, during the late 80s and around 1990. And then, and that was what people had observed at the time. And they had said, hey, look, you know, the game's gotten more physical. It's gotten faster. This is giving the advantage to younger uh stronger, more athletic, faster players, right? And so all we're going to do is we're just going to make the game younger. But then what happened that I don't think anyone predicted is that it came back. And so now players are as old or older than they were in the 70s, back when the game was slower and less physical. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there was really this temporary, there's this U-shape and this temporary period where young younger players had this advantage over older players, but it was temporary. It went away um, after a while. And our explanation for this is that those younger players during that transition period, they kind of had a monopoly on knowing how to use these these newfangled rackets that the older players were not sure what to do with. Yeah, trying to learn how to adapt the older player versus the younger player. So in reality, the, the generations that maybe you just got to the pro tour and you know you've been on the pro tour for 10 years and then the new racket technology that generation got hurt but then subsequently every generation for a while after that also got damaged with the longevity of their career right yeah so uh what you see is that 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 sort of that Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi, Michael Chang generation got this boost from getting to compete against older players that didn't know how to compete with the rackets. Um, but then the generation after them had no such advantage, right? And and so um, I think there was this effect where because those that that sort of five to eight year window of players um, got to compete against people who didn't know how to play with these new rackets they kind of got a leg up at the beginning of their careers, which you see in terms of kind of age of earliest Grand Slam winner and stuff like that. And so, you know, there's just the nature of the way the tour works. And I think it's like this in golf, getting that, getting that break early in your career is big, right? Cause that allows you to be, um, uh, to qualify for more tournaments and things like this. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, uh, which is something I'd like to look at in the future is to kind of look at the effect of getting kind of an early break, 
and and how that uh, how that plays out over the rest of your career. But certainly, this generation had that. It's it's interesting. So we we're seeing this similar thing going on with golf right now, with like a, a youth explosion, and it's fascinating to see you know kids younger and younger having more and more success. And it's like you know the the first debuts on tour, like their debut rounds, are are all sudden in the '60s, where it used to be their '78s. But I think there's also this intimidation factor that's no longer because they're seeing all their peers do really well. Uh, yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, I would just, yeah, it would be, it, it's one thing to be going up against a seasoned player and, uh, and knowing that everyone else who's done it has gotten killed. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's another thing to be going up against that player and knowing that, you know, just a month ago, someone your age beat that guy. Yeah. Right. I think psychologically it's got to help at least help you feel like I, you know, I got a chance. I, I have a chance here and, uh, and, and to, to go for it. You're young, right? Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I guess you alluded to this a little earlier during this period of, of massive change. How, what was the reaction of say the governing bodies of tennis? And then also, you know, the, the media, the, and the other, you know, big players in the space. So, so the, yeah. So the governing bodies of tennis, tennis took a while to, to really coalesce into a, so now we have the association of tennis professionals who's the overseeing body of this, um, uh, of men's professional tennis. It was a little bit prior to uh, 1968, there was a split between amateur tennis and professional tennis and so in 1968, we had the beginning of what's called the uh, the open era, but that even took a few years to really sort itself out. And so, um, uh, w- once things kind of unified, that it was a very hands-off approach to equipment. So there were there's regulations about the height of the net and the size of the court, and um, and that was kind of it. And as far as the rackets go, there was really Anything you wanted to do was allowed at first, uh, and so when so uh, the first rackets that were widely used were these wooden rackets, um, and they ended up all being more or less the same size, not because they had to be, but because people quickly figured out that that was sort of the optimal size if you were going to make a, a racket out of wood uh, that that would work for a tennis racket. And that was the way all through the 70s. And then in uh, 1976, um, Prince came out with the first um, lar- larger head. Uh, and it was, uh, but the problem is, is the racket wasn't stiff enough for professional players, right? And so it was great for club players and, and beginning players, and it became very popular. But professional players needed something stiffer because of the pace that they were hitting the ball. So then a couple of years later, they came out with the uh, uh, Prince came out with its pro racket. Uh, and it was only a couple of years later that everyone on the tour had switched over. So, so with, gonna... with that first uh, racket, the, was the intention of that racket for the, the masses rather than the pros? It was marketed at the masses. I don't know. 
it's hard to know if they knew ahead of time what they knew, right? But it got it was marketed at the at the uh, lower level players, um, and I think some pros maybe tried it out, but it just it wasn't adequate. Uh, and so then they developed the the pro racket uh, specifically uh, for the better players because you know you can only go so far in marketing your your racket to um, club and and amateur players when all when they on TV all the professional players are playing with something else right and so you really want those racket endorsements and and so you know they quickly figured out how to redesign and engineer the racket so that they could have that larger uh, string bed. And the way they did it was using uh, what today are called, sometimes it's called graphite, although it's not actually graphite, but it's it's these composite materials that they figured out how to weave together to create a material that was much stiffer and, and would uh, be able to have the stiffness the pros needed while still having that larger string bed. And once they figured out how to do that, then the other racket makers uh, jumped right in, and you know it was uh, a few years later, and wood rackets were a thing in the past. So, so how did did the technology continue to evolve all the way through today? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So they, you know, there's still um, there have been improvements in the type of uh, string that players use. So even when I was growing up, the players were still using natural gut, which is um, uh, made from what's well, called cat gut, but I think it's actually made from sheep's uh, stomach, right? And it was very expensive. But the idea was that it gave the best feel. Nowadays, um, they've got a synthetic string that's better than that. So it's um, most of the players are using something synthetic. So there's been improvements in the in the strings that gets they get used. There's been improvements in um, uh, in the rackets, even things like the grips, and so. Uh, there's a lot of, like I, as I said earlier, the physics of, of tennis are uh, very involved. And so there's actually been a lot of research in the industry on really mapping out the physics of what happens in a, in a stroke and where, how do you weight the racket and you try to put more weight towards one end or the other and, and all these sorts of things. So like those would classify as like minor improvements, though, and wouldn't have a massive effect like the racket. Yeah, they're much more incremental and much more, I would say, idiosyncratic based on like different players. It would be much more customized. Mm -hmm. Whereas this change from from wood to composite rackets was was like a, you know, it was better for everyone. Okay, so it's like a when there's a when there's a a change that forces everybody to change that you know, right? And so so as we kind of kind of transition this to to golf and so in 1993 callaway comes out with the big bertha which is you know kind of the first metal driver that everybody you know is starting to look at and then by 1997 it's fully it's pretty much fully adopted on tour that everybody's using metal drivers across different brands right so one would say that would be a first technological shock, right? Yeah, that, yeah, that's how I would describe it. Mm -hmm. And then the drivers since have gotten bigger and bigger. You know, I think the original Big Bertha was 190 cc's, and then they capped it at 460 cc's. <laughs> so, so right. you know, it's like almost three times the size. 
not right. not quite three times, two and a half times the size. Um, and and I think, as I understand it, the constraint, like why didn't they just jump all the way there right to begin with, was um, they had to figure out how to make it forgiving enough that you wouldn't just hook it off the off the course. Is that? I I think so. And the it, I'm not sure. I think it was the aerodynamics too of like uh, being yeah. able to generate the same amount of speed with the bigger That's head. Um, and then the, the light and how light it is. I think one of the big things was a composite head that eventually came about thanks to, I think like Callaway had this C4 driver. It was a complete piece of garbage, but what happened was then the, that composite head became like part of their next driver, which was really good. I see. So like, you know, like there was this evolution, but, but then with, so I think the thing with golf that happened that's unique is that we have this driver revolution going on. Right. And then in 2001, the ball industry gets completely turned on its head where you have all these pros talking about like, I'll never forget the day that I hit the pro V one, which is when the ball went from a wound, you know, core okay. to a solid core with a urethane cover, which, you know, all of a sudden provided less spin, longer shots and you know much more consistency in the in the flight so you know all of a sudden this ball was longer and straighter significantly longer and straighter that comes about in 2001 so it was almost like tennis but where we have two massive innovations at once both of which became universally adopted extremely quickly right so the and, and they complemented each other in that the you know the the value of the ball is improved by having the drivers, but the drivers are also more valuable once you have a ball that can uh, can kind of that you can hit straight at those long distances. Yeah, exactly. So they they would the ball would curve less and everything, and that that ball continued to obviously evolve, and the driver continued to obviously evolve. And one fascinating thing is we've had this TrackMan come about which is you know it, it monitors you know like when you swing and hit a shot it gives you all these statistics on your club path your spin rates all these things which has allowed the instructors to optimize their instruction to to get people to hit it perfectly right so right. this track man has become universally adopted as well on the tour as as recently as the you know early 2010s right so, yeah, a similar technology in tennis is Hawkeye. Mm -hmm. That they uh, so at all the all the majors and many of the lower level tournaments, they have these camera systems that are set up all around the court that can track the location of the ball in through, you know through the whole match. And they so you the most common place where you see that this used is when they challenge line calls, and they'll use the Hawkeye replay to say, okay, like was it really in or out? But the but the I don't know if every everyone realizes this, but those cameras are going the whole time actually, and so they can um, you can compile all kinds of interesting statistics about how players are playing. It's not just tracking the location of the ball, but also it's it's velocity and it's spin, right? And so you you know you have a lot of data that you can dig into as a professional player now that simply wasn't available uh, you know ten or fifteen years ago. So, yeah, so you could probably figure out how people are playing, how, how players' tendencies much easier than before when you just have to sit and watch and observe and try and 
you know, think about it. It's like, well, he hits this shot 42% of the time. Exactly. Yep. Whether it's serve tendencies, but also, you know, uh, you, you even have information about where are they standing on the court? Are they way behind the baseline? Are they up front? You know, and you can see all these things. Um, it's kind of it's kind of amazing. And I think that the sport is still at the very beginning stages of trying to figure out how to use all this new information. So this is this is true with everybody everywhere with big data, right? Is it's like we've gotten really good at collecting and storing data, and we're still trying to figure out how to use it. And uh, this is true in tennis, it's true in golf, and it seems to be true in, in lots of industries. So it's a, I think it's an exciting time to be someone who works with data. It's like, okay, a lot of cool things we can do with this, and we're just getting started. So with golf, I think about 2005, 2006 is when we got to the 460cc driver head. Is that when you'd cap it? Like, since it's capped there, is that... How, if you were going to apply your study or your paper to golf, where where would you say the transition period is, and you know when we would have started to see the effects? Because you know I have in my head where I think it would be, but you know I'm curious how you would go about it with knowing the general timeline that you know. Yeah. So one thing about tennis that's different about golf is um, tennis player careers tend to be pretty short. So we find like the average career is like six to eight years long uh, and a really long career might be 15 years, but that, that would be a long career. And so when you're, when you're thinking about the, the tennis context from say the, the early 1980s when the rackets arrived to say the, the mid two thousands when it seemed like all the all the transition had kind of worked itself out, and we're sort of back to a new, you know, we, we returned sort of back to equilibrium. Um, so that's like 20, 25 years. That's almost like four generations of players, maybe three or four generations of players. So it took a while for everything to work itself out. So what's the typical career length for a golf player? I don't actually know. I see. I I haven't ever found like an average. I've I've looked for this a bunch, but if I had to guess, I would say ten years. Okay, so it's a bit longer. A little uh, bit longer. I, I like so. Phil Mickelson is now entering. He's twenty seven years. So on the long right. end, the long end. If you took the average, because there's so many guys that might be on on the PGA tour for a year and never get back, or three years, like. But if I think yes. if you looked at the median, I think like, you know, eight to 10 years, but then the long, I think the long tail of the great players is really long. Yeah. That's kind of how it is in tennis too. Is a lot of players in our data, you see them one year, mm-hmm. right. And then they, they just kind of don't make it, um, or, you know, they kind of make it on barely, but then, you know, it doesn't quite work out for them for different reasons. Um, so I, it sounds to me like it was the combination of this, the drivers and the balls that kind of really um, changed the, the dynamics of the game from one where, and this was, this was sort of my question. I know a little bit about golf, but not as much about, you know, as, as you and your listeners. The, 
As I understand it, as the driving distances have got longer, players have become less concerned with hitting the fairway, and they and they kind of realized that you know I'm better off going a 50 yards longer, even if I land in the light rough or the rough, than I am laying up shorter and hitting the fairway. Is that is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So it's you know like the proximity of the hole with somebody from 150 in the rough is is better than the proximity of the hole if you're 200 yards away in the, in the fairway. Right. So there's, so there's no reason not to hit the driver up there. And so I you think just go the, for it. Yeah. The other aspect of it is the associated penalty of the rough if you have a, a higher lofted club is much less than the associated penalty of rough if you have a lower lofted club, you know, like a, a five iron versus a pitching wedge. Right, right. So you get the you know the nine iron or the or the or the wedge, and then um, if you can get within a hundred yards or or so, mm-hmm. then it's not a big deal. Exactly. The the that associated penalty of being in the rough is much smaller the closer you get to the hole. Um, right. So I think that it's almost it's almost riskier to go for the shorter drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and and I think one of the interesting things with golf, though, also that happened is that there was this. Uh, you know, golf courses aren't all the same, aren't a uniform size, you know, like a, like a tennis court, you know, you're playing on the same court. So golf courses have gotten significantly longer to attempt to combat this distance. Right. And what, what we saw was these longer courses actually played more into the long hitters hands. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to know exactly what what is the. So if you were, if you were trying to design a golf course that would help, uh, or that would give less of a benefit to long drivers, mm-hmm. um, not quite clear what you would want to do. And maybe the right answer would be something like. Um, something about pin placement on the green as opposed to the length of the hole mm-hmm. as you were just saying it's a, i had our i had one of the top architects in the world on and he said to challenge the long hitter they want to make courses shorter and wider i see because then it it forces them to pick lines and you know they can hit drivers still but you might get into weird positions where you can't hit a full shot in and because of the spin, you know, you're coming into the green with less spin. So it's harder to hit it at certain pins like you were talking about. So right, right. it's a, it's a fascinating thing. Um, you know, in, in we're at the beginning, you know, just last year we had an 18 year old earn his PGA tour card. We have, you know, the, the, the top 10 in the, in golf is now younger than the top 10 in tennis. First time ever right. that's happened. The average age of the official world golf rankings top 200 is three years younger than it was 20 years ago. So, you know, pretty a significant change in the age of the sport. So to me, like reading your paper, it, it, you know, and this is my interpretation, but I'm curious is like, we're just at the start of where it went from everybody got better or, you know, it, it, everybody got better. Some people were a little bit better to now this young age is the age that grew up, never hit, you know, the small headed driver. Cause I'm 33 and I grew up with a small headed driver. 
Right. So so now we've got the, the people who grew up with this, with these new drivers and these new balls, they never knew the old thing. Um, they're not they're not playing playing with an old style playing old style game with new equipment. They're playing new style game with new equipment. And um, and part of what that means is they can hit the those drives really far. You know, what's interesting about golf that's different from tennis is in tennis the the court hasn't changed. They have changed some about the surfaces, um, some, but uh, it's really players playing against each other. Golf has an interesting dynamic where players are kind of playing against each other, but they're really playing against the course, right? And so there's a competition here almost between course designers and players, right? Which is a which is an interesting dimension. What you were alluding to is okay. Well, in this arms race between course designers and players okay the players have made their move right now they can hit these long drives and now how are the course designers going to react to that and then how are the players then going to respond to that and so um i would imagine you know if 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 folks start to see the new courses that are designed to, to reduce the benefit to these long drives um, you probably would see uh, uh, innovations in things like the the iron the irons, right? Where um, we focused so much attention on how do we make these drivers hit farther? Well, maybe now it's more about well, how do we come up with better wedges and um, better uh, uh, like five irons and things like this that will allow you to maneuver through those holes. Um, I don't know, I, but I, I think it'll be fascinating. I can tell you what happened in tennis. Uh, so the first thing that people figured out how to do with the new rackets is they figured out how to serve really hard. And uh, and that kind of outpaced everyone's ability to return those serves. And so there was a period where um, there was a lot of hard serving and a lot of just aces and very, very short points. And people... Uh, were complaining that the game had gotten very boring on the men's side. Uh, but eventually, uh, players figured out how to uh, return those serves. Because even though the, 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 uh, the rackets allowed you to serve hard, the rackets also with that larger string bed gave you more room for error to return that same serve. And so players started to figure out how to, how to return those serves and it turns out if you hit the hit the serve very hard, it, it makes it almost impossible to serve and volley. And so whereas in the past you'd have these serve and volley players who would serve and then rush the net, and that would end the points quickly, as the serves got harder and harder, actually that strategy no longer worked. And so uh, the serve and volley players started to become a dying breed, uh, and more and more players they were serving – those hard serves, but staying at the baseline, players were getting better and better at returning those serves, and then the the points started getting longer. So um, it's hard to know when these changes have when these when these new equipment changes occur and and something immediately changes in the game. It's hard to know if that's going to be a permanent change or if it's just a transition period to something new. Interesting. So you know, it's just it almost is like the you know the market normalizing 
is the right, whole, yeah. whole idea of it is there's, you know, the technological shock, m- massive change, youth comes in, but then it's just, it takes a while for it to normalize and you get a game that's wildly different, but has the same types of careers and the same, you know, the, uh, the ability to have a longevity, a long t- time great player is, is back. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and, uh, you know, there's sort of, there's a few different players here. So there's the players themselves, there's people designing the course, and then there's, there's the racket or the, in your case, the, the club makers and the ball makers. Right. And those, those club makers are responding to what, uh, what the players want. Right. And, um, what the players want depends on the courses that they're facing. Right. So everyone's kind of responding to each other. Um, and as, as these things evolve over time, it's, it's always interesting to see where they go. And it, it's very difficult, I think, to predict. I don't think anyone would have predicted in 1990 where tennis would be today in terms of the style and how it's played and and everything. So, so if you were given advice to golf, you know, I, I'm I might be one of the people that's like, this is this is crazy. What's going on? What mm-hmm. would you say? Man, well, <laughs> that's a great question. I would say. Um, uh, I I would say let's be I would be cautious about making big changes that are difficult to undo. So making like a rollback. Know, yeah, changes that are that are trying to take us back in time because mm-hmm. it's really hard to put the genie back in the bottle with a lot of this stuff. And rather than rather than trying to say come up with some new rule that you know, that uh, say, oh, it has to be a wound ball, no more solid core balls or something like this, right? Um, rather than doing that sort of a thing, you know, allow the allow the designers of the courses, allow the equipment makers, you know, allow the players to experiment and find new things. And I think that uh, the course designers and, and uh, people running the tour, like they want the game to be entertaining. They want it to be interesting. They uh, and they're going to find creative ways to adapt to the, to these new technologies that, that retain kind of what everyone loves about golf um, without having to um, kind of put the put the sport in a straitjacket and try to keep it in you know static rather than allowing it to evolve um, uh, over time. Yeah. So because if you did a rollback, for example, and you went back to say the small heads it would just cause the same effect that happened when you went to the big heads sure yeah that would that would be really interesting for like a follow-up study for us but i don't know if it would be good for golf <laughs> that's uh because that's, uh, that's the one thing I, i've always you know i've been in this camp i thought about is like the biggest problem is like so one of our issues with golf is like you know, it, you can imagine if baseball allowed aluminum bats that all of a sudden Wrigley Field and Fenway Park would be irrelevant. So the mo- most historic golf courses are being forced to lengthen and, and do all these these crazy things that cost, you know, the, the expense of building a golf course is very high. It's not right. not, a, not a, a cheap thing to do is that 
the keeping up with the distance has become unsustainable. So that's mm-hmm. that's the added issue as opposed to a tennis court that remains the same size regardless. Right. And and that's where, yeah, I've, I you know I don't design golf courses. So I don't know the details on how you do this, but I imagine that uh, designers are going to come up with um, more... Um, uh, more, more creative ways than just lengthening lengthening holes, but more creative ways. Maybe the maybe the dog legs start to look different, or there's more dog leg holes. Or th- things that uh, keep the course interesting without allowing the sort of these drivers to to uh, make you know, sort of make it too easy or something like that. So here's here's a just a, something that just popped in my head is like. If, if we had done nothing to the golf courses, by continuing to change them, are you creating like an effect that is almost magnifying the, the technological change? Well, I think every time, every time the, the courses change, you're going to see um, club makers and ball makers uh, change in response, right? So you, whatever you change about the courses to, to make them challenging in a new way or whatever, um, the equipment makers are going to be trying to come up with ways to help players uh, overcome those obstacles and players are going to want to buy the, the, the equipment that works, that does that. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be, there's always a flux in these things. And, and you see this, I think, in, in tennis, you see it in golf. Um, you see it in other sports as well, where the equipment um, keeps evolving, uh, and then the sport kind of has to keep up with it in one way or another. And as you change things about the sport, there's this feedback loop where you know players are going to respond. I think if the sport doesn't ever change anything, we'd expect uh, scores to just continue to fall, right? Because equipment's going to keep getting better, players are going to keep getting better, and they're they're going to get really, really good at playing the courses that never change. Yeah. Uh, And that's, I think that's one of the golf's issues is everybody's stuck on this par aspect, like score to par, but it's like, you know, it's, Oh, they shot 20 under. It's like, well, it's a completely different game than 20 years ago. Like shouldn't hold on to the same par, you know, you can change the number that par is like change it from 70 to 67. And all of a sudden they were only, you know, uh, t- instead of twenty under, they were eight under. The the one the one technology that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting um, were these uh, uh, green reading books. Oh yeah, that's the, that I thought was very interesting because that. So when we were thinking about these rackets, we were thinking about changes that affect um, that that increase the returns to one type of skill and decrease the returns to another type of skill. Mm-hmm. And so the the creation of these uh, these technologies that will kind of read the green for you really reduce the returns to being able to read a green, while at the same time we've increased the returns to being you know driving distance or something like this, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was I thought uh, really fascinating, and I don't know what that's going to do uh, to the game, but that's a, you know, that's a fascinating thing that might be a, a more chewable 
study to look into because we have shot link data before and after these right. screen reading books. And I would be really interested to see if that might be one of the biggest, you know, where older players, like you learn how to, you know, you're constantly learning how to read a green better and better and better. You know, right. there is a diminishing return when you get older, your putting skills typically fade, but all of a sudden these young kids have a book that tells them how a green breaks that these other guys have played for 15 years. And that, that advantage is, is extremely minimized. Right. In a way. Right. And so, yeah, in the past it had been the case that being able to read a green was something that took years and years to really develop and hone. Mm -hmm. And now it just doesn't anymore. Right. That's something that I would, I would have thought would be a, a big benefit to the younger players relative to the older players. Yeah. They can, and they and the older players like they don't even like really know how to you know it takes time to learn how to read those books versus the kids that grow up with them now, right? And it's just it's kind of second nature, kind of like a kind of like my kids and the iPad. Mm -hmm. They uh, I don't know how they know to just swipe left, but they know. <laughs> so, so like when I was reading your, you referenced computers, that's like the perfect example of this. Is like where. My I'm 33. My parents are not nearly as good with computers as I am, and I'm not nearly as good as the generation younger than me with computers. Right. Yeah. So I mean, imagine, imagine it's uh, you know 1980, and you've got a secretary who's been a secretary for the last 25 years, and you know is very a, a very good typist, and you know is, uses the typewriter all the time, and you know you you remove the typewriter and you install a, a computer, you know, one of those green, green screen computers at the time. And you say, here's this thing, use this now. What's the, what's her response going to be or his response going to be? It's going to be, uh, well, it looks like I got a typewriter that I don't have to use whiteout on, right? Like, which is better. And so that secretary would say, well, this is definitely improvement, and and the productivity would go up. But uh, you know, treating a computer as if it's a typewriter that doesn't require whiteout is kind of like, you know, what happened with these older players when the new rackets arrived. Like it was a better version of 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 what we had before, and but it's very hard for them to fully realize and fully take advantage of the fact that no, this isn't just better than before. This is something fundamentally new, and uh, and and to work through all the implications of that. That's, see, that's that's a great parallel. I think the like the computer one with every you know that that really explains a lot of stuff with both tennis and with golf, with with how the different generations you know are able to use the modern technology. Yeah, and so the question the question for golf will be: um, Are there are there more large uh, equipment innovations to come in the future or um, have the big ones happened and it'll be mostly incremental from here on out. So in the case of tennis, there was that big one and then incremental, you know, from then on out. And so you kind of got this return to what we'd had before. If there are more ones on, on the horizon, then, you know, it could take, a, uh, that would prolong how long it's going to take to get back to That's equilibrium. It seems like, you know, at this point, 
the governing by the USGA and RNA are like much more stringent about like, no, like this is not, not going like they, they limited what a green book could have this last year, which made everybody really upset. You know, they, they, and they've started to do different things where they talk about de-skilling the game, you know? So I would guess that we're at the end of we're. I don't think we'll see any major innovation. Like I think TrackMan stuff like TrackMan will probably still continue to evolve, but we aren't going to see any like huge ball or driver technology advances, in my opinion, because they're pretty capped out. Yeah, and the the issue is always. So what happened with one of the things that happened in tennis? So I told you it was very hands off. People do what they want. And and then um, someone uh, invented what's called spaghetti stringing. So in spaghetti stringing, what you do is um, the, the normal way that you string a tennis racket is just a basic weave pattern. So kind of alternating under over and you and you weave the, the strings together In spaghetti stringing. You, it's, you do it in this crazy way, right, where uh, and the effect of the of spaghetti stringing is that it makes the spin that that gets imparted to the ball unpredictable, right? And so you'd hit this ball and it would have some crazy spin on it and it was almost impossible to return. And so then at that point they stepped in and said, no, we're going to outlaw spaghetti stringing. Mm-hmm. And so at some point the governing bodies did say, okay, this type of, of an innovation is kind of destroying the essence of the game, or is contrary to the essence of the game. And they, the determination was, if even the person hitting the ball can't predict the spin they're putting on it, like that's not what we're going for, right? And and similarly with golf, if if there's a consensus that being able to read a green with a naked eye is an important aspect of what it means to play the game of golf, then I could see why you would. Yeah, be opposed to the books, but yeah, and and I think with tennis, what you saw was, you saw, the game went one way, and I think w- with golf, we're we're like it's very like drive it as far as you can, wedge it, you know where you know wherever go it driving it straight and far is obviously most important, but driving it far is is more important than driving it straight. So yeah, and then it's wedges and putter, right? But eventually that's going to come back and normalize in the next two to four generations and become more a complete game. Right. Yeah. And it might, it might take the form of increasing the penalty of those, of those roughs or something. Mm-hmm. And maybe you, you make the grass higher in the rough or I don't know what, what they'll come up with. Um, and I don't know what the rules are limiting the way that courses can be designed. And, and maybe those need to be rethought as well mm-hmm. to, give the course designers more flexibility and in, in, in creating courses that are still challenging and interesting, even in the face of the, the new um, equipment that's come out. It, it was fascinating. They had a, one of the leading architects put a center line bunker. So he put a bunker in the center of the fairway. Oh, okay. Uh, on a hole that was a regular PGA tour stop and the players hated it. Because it was like, you know, right where they wanted to hit and right in the middle of their dis- shot distribution, right? So, right. you know, you put a cone on the, how the shots distribute. 
So like they didn't know where to aim, but it, it, it favored if you played up the left side into this 30, 30 yard window, you were like greatly rewarded. And that's where almost all the birdies came on that week. I see. But the players hated it so much. They asked for it to be removed. It got removed this year. Yeah. So th- it, there's this other dynamic of the players, if they complain, the architects can't actually like that's an innovate. That's an example of an innovation that that tests that player, you know, changes the the look of everything, and the players complain and it gets removed. Yep. And yeah. So that'll be the that'll be the decision. I guess the, the governing body folks have to make is how do we trade off? Um, we, we want we want the players to be able to showcase their skills because that's what people want to see, right? They want to see people playing golf uh, at the at peak peak levels of human performance. Mm-hmm. Um, on on the other hand, if the course is too easy, you actually can't, yeah. right? It, it's it not doesn't... impressive to watch professional players play on a course that's not hard enough. And it doesn't it doesn't create the true best player. Right. You right. Know, it, it, it'll lead to less variance in scoring and, you know, the it won't identify the true champion. You'll have a packed leaderboard and a bunch of guys really close together and you're not really sure who the best player was that week. That's right. And so, there, you know, I, what I imagine will happen, uh, well, what will have to happen is some consensus is going to have to emerge about uh, what. um what types of frustrating things are con- considered appropriate? Like bunk- bunkers are always frustrating. Yeah. Like no, I, all players would like all the bunkers to go away. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you don't want to land in one. And so it's, but everyone gets like, oh, we're used to seeing bunkers in these sorts of locations. We're not used to seeing them in this one. That throws us for a loop. But you know, when the if the culture of the game changes and people say. Well, actually, like the ability to maneuver around a mid fairway bunker is um, that's like a real sign of technical prowess. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, I imagine that the players would view that as as a as a uh, an, a necessary challenge as opposed to a, an irritating. Yeah, because <laughs> bunker, it, yeah. It, that create that's a test that identifies the best player, the one that's able to maneuver, who has the most confidence to aim to one side of it and hit it around it Um, you can say the same thing about you know uh water hazards or whatever if you weren't used to them being there and suddenly someone put a big lake between you and the green yeah you would say like what is this but you know we're we're used to that stuff and so what's what's also fascinating is the the period the rise of professional golf came during the period of the dark ages of golf architecture when it completely departed from like the ideals of great golf, which it, you know is the most the most timeless golf courses embody these different and and now we're in a period of architecture that's starting to embrace the you know principles that you know made golf more popular than any sport you know or than it had ever been not any sport but than it had ever right. been so it's it's a fascinating thing so you know in a sense like the future of the game a lot of it is uh, is architecture. Yeah, I think my my optimism, my optimistic side says that this um, this renaissance in in equipment, golf equipment, 
will lead to a, a renaissance in, in uh, course architecture mm-hmm. and a renaissance in um, uh, player strategy. Yeah. As players facing kind of new, these new course designs armed with new equipment start coming up with more uh, creative uh, and innovative ways to play the game, which is exactly what you see in tennis, right? And now, you know, the I would say that the game is as entertaining as it's ever been um, to watch. And, uh, you know, if you ever get to watch a tennis, a professional tennis match in person as opposed to on TV, it's mesmerizing. Right? It really is amazing um, uh, to watch them hit the ball. U.S. Open Wimbledon is definitely on my bucket list. One of those two. Hopefully yeah. both. Yep. Flushing Meadows or Wimbledon. Yeah, they'll both be great. Um, hey, Ian, thanks so much for your time. Um, and uh, I will put a link to your paper, you and Jonathan Hall's paper, which was Technological Change and Obsolete Skills, uh, Evidence from Men's Professional Tennis. Uh, so everybody can kind of read it and then... Uh, I don't know. You on social media anywhere? Can people, you know, read your uh, your, your thoughts uh, on, on the economy? I have a website, and, and my co-author has a website. Okay. Um, for, for my for my own uh, psychological well-being, I steer clear of Twitter <laughs> and social media. But what's um, the, what's the it, website? Uh, so, oh, let me just pull it up here. Good question. So it, it's just a Google site, sites.google.com slash Ian Fillmore, I believe. All right. I'll, uh, I'll put that link in there. But thanks so much for your time. I, I think this, uh, I hope people find this really interesting and as interesting as I find it. Um, well, I had a great time and I learned a lot about golf as well. So thanks for having me on. Yep. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Ian.